0: Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to America. Other people want to make friends, I'm trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you, so call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. You want to know what's driving this market to new all-time highs? Dow gaining 133 points today, S&P climbing 0.56%, NASDAQ pulling 1.01%. It's not the Fed. It's not the trade talks. It's a demand. Buy, buy, buy. Yes, demand for money. Buy, buy, buy. Demand for buy, homes. Buy, buy. Demand buy, for buy, data buy. processing. Buy, demand buy, for buy. cancer drugs. Buy, demand buy, buy. for programming. Demand for buy, fabulous cell phones. Demand buy, for planes. Buy, buy, buy. And of course, perhaps most important, demand for stocks. <laughs> Yet, if you listen to most of the experts, you'll hear a lot of sound and fury about how the global economy economy's get, gotten weaker because the trade war has shut down international trade. I don't want to sugarcoat anything. The global economy has absolutely taken a hit year over year, and the tariffs are part of that. But here's the thing. Many stocks were trading like we were about to get an even more stringent round of tariffs, and that didn't happen. Instead, the president started negotiating with China, and that allowed a host of flailing stocks to get their mojo back. The trade truce just made it possible, though. Without strong demand, the averages never would have made it this this far. Let me walk you through the places where that demand is most palpable so you see why I kept hitting that buy, buy, buy button. First, there's the demand for money. With interest rates ultra low, banks are doing brisk business, especially with the consumer. The financials started running when J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, and Bank of America kicked off this earnings season with really, truly astonishing numbers. The big takeaway from this reporting period is that domestic consumers are so strong that they've been able to offset the industrial weakness related to world trade. Given that the consumer accounts for two-thirds of the U.S. economy, the banks are in great shape, and that's how their stocks could rocket higher. No wonder LVMH, which is the big French company, wants to buy Tiffany. A A flush consumer is a Tiffany shopper. No bid yet, but a stock that's up 31%, well, we're not going to miss that in mad money, are we? All right, it's not just the consumer. Businesses also have a voracious appetite for money. So many companies realize they can borrow at low rates and then use that money to buy back stock when the market goes down. Hardly a day goes by without a bunch of corporate debt being offered at what I think are ridiculously low rates, but appetizing to anyone who wants to earn more than treasuries. There's been more than a trillion dollars worth of corporate debt issued so far this year. They're using some of that money to expand, but some of it's going to buybacks. I know it's easy to dismiss all this as the Fed propping up the stock market with cheap money, and I see it in my Twitter file all day. Guys, guys, I, I know it. What do you want me to say? Our interest rates are higher than the rest of the developed worlds, okay? Compared to Europe or Japan, our money's not cheap at all. So enough already with Jim. It's all just a big bubble. You know what? I'm here to try to help you make money, not to pop bubbles. Either way, when there's strong demand for money, the banks have good earnings. When the banks have good earnings, they tend to boost their dividends and bring back big buybacks. And when that happens, their stocks become investable, whether it's a bubble or not. Again, no judgments, people. You can miss out on a whole rally. It's been a bubble. Let me give you a Do you know it's been a bubble since August of, of 1982? Number two, there's the demand for housing. This is hard to see because we simply don't have enough houses for sale in this country. That's put a crimp on the mortgage on the aggregate housing numbers, but homes are changing hands here and changing hands rapidly ever since the last dip of mortgage rates. As anyone in real estate can tell you, what matters is turnover. You need to see lots of homes being bought and sold. That's a major driver of the U.S. economy. Sure, housing only accounts for 15% of our economy, but it punches above its weight. Think about everything that goes into a home. Think about the retailers. Think about WATCH, my acronym for Walmart, Amazon, Target, Costco, Home Depot. That, they, they get a nice tailwind as housing sales pick up. It's also one reason why the payment processors like Visa... MasterCard reports later this week, PayPal, they're all doing so well. Third, there's demand for data. Now, this is the greatest secular growth story of our era. Data by itself isn't all that valuable, but data that's curated, massaged, identified, parsed, manipulated, analyzed, well, that's incredibly valuable. There's a whole ecosystem of companies that unlock the power of digital information. Let's call it Adobe, Oracle, Salesforce, SAP, Splunk, Cisco, Twilio, NVIDIA, Facebook, Twitter, Alphabet, Amazon. They're all abettors of this process. Uh, all of them are either, uh, they either har- harvest data or help make sense of it. And even after Alphabet, you may be disappointed with the quarter, but boy, is it ever in the mix. So let's not get too negative. And you can't really put a dollar value on something amorphous like data. There are too many different kinds of data. That said, this morning, Spotify just reported a much better than expected quarter. We interviewed outgoing CFO Barry McCarthy this morning on Squawk on the Street. And you better believe Spotify is using algorithms to push the music to you that you want to hear. If Spotify seems like a mind reader, well, it kind of is. The company has a map of your brain, and it can show you the way. Of course, there are companies that may be using their data nefariously. we got a whole host of politicians who seem to care a lot more about what Facebook's doing with your data than the actual users do. I don't know the answer, but I do know that data is the coin of the realm. As long as they get that data voluntarily, I am telling you, I do not see a big deal about Facebook Demand for data is also driving the big run in semiconductor stocks like Intel and AMD. You need them to process data, whether it's uh, at at the PC level or the data center level, where NVIDIA is beginning to dominate again. We know Amazon Web Services, Google Cloud, Microsoft Azure, and IBM all have capabilities to store and process that data. Fourth, when you look at the pharmaceutical landscape, and I think it's important to point this out, it's clear that combating cancer has become a gigantic tentpole business for many drug companies. Once Bristol-Myers merges with Celgene, oh, they're going to combine two amazing oncological franchises into one. AstraZeneca's cancer business is incredibly strong. Amgen's trying to crack in it. Merck's Keytruda is already there. Could be the greatest selling drug of all time. This is a hugely profitable part of the pharma industry, and for good reason. How about the fifth source of demand? Right now, we're in the golden age of entertainment where media platforms are desperate to give us something to watch. Does Apple have a programming deficit? How about HBO, Disney Plus? Anyone who makes content is surging here. We'll see what Apple and HBO have up their sleeves when they report later this week. Okay, now, speaking of Apple, We'll also find out how well the new iPhones are selling. Now, the 11 was supposed to be a dud. I mean, people didn't think this was anything special. Like, what are these three things, that kind of thing? I think people underestimated the appeal of the three cameras in an era where Instagram is everything and the better battery life. Holy cow. Because I can watch whole football games, watch myself lose on uh, in fantasy, and still have enough to be able to bemoan it and call people and say how angry I am. Now, there are, uh, these phones. What do they have in it when you break them down? Well, they got the Skyworks, they got the Solution, they got the Qualcomm, they got the NXP. Have you seen that NXP? It was going absolutely crazy. Why? Because it had fantastic numbers tonight. The pin action is outstanding. Remember, a huge service revenue stream comes from the phone as do, uh, expensive indispensables like the Apple Watch, the new noise canceling AirPods for when you have babies next to you. Do you know that my wife voices? To me, shut up and stop complaining when you have a crying baby like it's my fault. <laughs> Six planes. We had Doug Parker, the CEO of American Airlines, on the show on Friday, and he talked about trying to be reimbursed by Boeing uh, for around four hundred million in losses from missed fares thanks to the 737 Max disaster. Parker's not alone. But even though we don't have enough aircraft, the demand for air travel continues unabated. Most people in the world still haven't flown a plane. There are only two big aircraft manufacturers on Earth, Boeing and Airbus. The demand has massively overwhelmed supply, hence why Boeing stock refuses to roll over. I bet you all that negative testimony tomorrow won't really hurt the stock. Bottom line, all of this bullish activity breeds an environment where stocks represent superior value because their earning streams are less dependent on the Fed than the macro commentators would have you believe. Let's say something. I really mean this because I thought a lot about it this weekend while my wife was working making pizza. These macro guys, they're constantly jabbering about aggregate data without ever talking about demand itself. Because they don't do the homework. It's too time-consuming. It keeps you from having that great Cabernet, okay? It keeps you from catching the kids' games or bringing, maybe binging on Netflix. It keeps you from gorging on the NFL. But it's what you have to do in order to do this job. You need to listen to the conference calls to know who has demand and who doesn't. Right now, the demand eyes have it, and that's a big reason why we can keep going higher. Sorry, but I just had to put it that way because, believe me, these weekends are torture during earnings season. I just wanted a good cab. John in Alabama, please, John. Hey, Jim. Booyah from the Roll Tide State. No man, I love that. What's up? Hey, uh, I'm approaching retirement. The market's approaching all-time highs. I feel like my portfolio should include gold to help protect my retirement. Question, what percent of my portfolio should be invested in gold, and what gold investments would you recommend? Okay, uh, no more than 10%. I happen to like, if you want to own gold, the... Uh Bullion, and then I think you can just go, that's great to have in a safety deposit box. Please don't bury it. I also like the uh, stock. The symbol is G-O-L-D, which is back. That's, that's run by Mark Bristow. So that's a nice growth stock. It's another way to go. It's terrific, and I like it very much. Uh, let's go to, uh, you know what? I, I, I should say that I also like Agnico Eagle now uh, because I share your uh, like for gold. Let's go to Jason in Illinois. Jason. Mr. Kramer. Yes. A uh, big windy city, booyah to ya. Okay, I come to Philadelphia and hope we give you a beatdown, booyah. What's up? <laughs> uh, I'm looking into a pharmaceutical for my portfolio. All right. Uh, I like what I like what I see with AstraZeneca, um, mm-hmm. a nice dividend and about 164 drugs in their pipeline. Right. My, que- my question is, should I invest solely in AstraZeneca or take some mad money, gamble a little bit, roll the dice? and put some into Moderna, which they own about 9%. Okay, I'm so glad you put all those caveats in because that is what Moderna is. It is a huge spec. When I met them in January at the J.P. Uh, Morgan conference, I said, well, it's interesting spec, but AstraZeneca is on fire here. I really, really like that, and I think that that is the better one. All right, demand, 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 demand. Demand is what's driving this market to all-time highs. Some companies have it and some don't. You need to listen carefully to recognize the difference. On May Money Tonight, with all the talk about a potential recession, I'm buying an extravagant group of stocks that could offer a deep dive into the consumer's pockets and help your portfolio in the process. Then is the force with Microsoft after Music won the Pentagon's Jedi contract? I'm breaking down the action and I'm revealing the biggest surprise of this earnings season and explaining why one group of stocks has suddenly become Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe. I can't wait to get all of those resources under one hour-long newscast where we can deliver the facts of the day clearly and concisely in context and with perspective and tell people what's happening, what it all means. Get the truth, not the spin. The news with Shepard Smith. Subscribe to the podcast today. Like I told you at the top of the show, I think our economy is in better shape than many of the experts would have you believe. The consumer. The, the industrial slowdown is real. I'm no denying that. It's weighed down by weakness in the rest of the world. But it's more than being offset by that strong consumer. We know the consumer spending, which is why tonight I want to take a closer look at the most discretionary of discretionaries, the companies that people don't tend to give their money to unless they're feeling really flush. And because I think we need to approach these issues with a quantitative frame of mind rather than just be emotional about it, we're going to go off the charts with the help of Bob Lang. He's the founder of ExplosiveOptions.net, as well as being the brilliant technician the all-star team behind the Street.com's trifecta stocks newsletter and the author of Know Your Options to Get a Better Sense of the Action in Winnebago, Polaris, Royal Caribbean, and Marriott Vacations Worldwide. Hey, those are about as discretionary as it gets in motorhomes, cruises, snowmobiles, timeshares. In a strong job market with rising wages, high stock prices, low interest rates, and housing in recovery, Lang thinks these big-ticket discretionary spending plays are the older barometer of the consumer's health. Hey, you know what? I'm sure prestige king from France, LVMH, had the same thought when it approached Tiffany this weekend with an offer to buy the hallowed high-end jewelry chain. These kinds of stocks only work when the consumers willing to spend and banks are willing to lend. So how are they doing right now? When Lang looks under the hood, you know what? He sees signs of a very strong economy. So why don't we start with the daily chart of Winnebago, all right? which reported a blowout quarter last week that said it flying. Lang's excited by this rally because it took place on high volume, and for technicians, volume is like a lie detector. The higher it is, the more likely the move is telling the truth. Meanwhile, the on-balance volume line, an indicator that looks like volume flow, adding the volume on up days and subtracting the volume on down days, that's what on-balance volume is, made a big move up confirming the run. See that? Okay. Uh, From the moment when cleared its ceiling of resistance at $40, the stock was ready for a road trip, one that's taken it to $51. Lang points out that the moving average, convergence, divergence, or MACD indicator, and here we are at the bottom. Well, that recently flashed a buy signal where the black line crosses above the red one. Okay, you see that cross right there? And the relative strength, or RSI, is as good as it gets. That's really beautiful. Some would say it's a little overbought, but... I get the program. Uh, he recommends waiting for a pullback, in part because that's overbought, but uh, then you can back up the truck and buy some more RV. I can't believe how, how well the stock is doing. I mean, Thor should be coming back a little more than it is. Could be interesting. Uh, how about the a daily chart of Polaris? Scott Wine makes snowmobiles, all-terrain vehicles, boats, talk about stuff you don't need. This is another one that reported strong numbers last week. It, shot, uh, it was shooting into the st- a stratosphere right now. Just like Winnebago, the rally happened on big volume. Polaris caught a Bullish MACD crossover, so here we go again, there's that crossover, all right, at the beginning of the month, and that's one of the most reliable signals in the chart book. Right now, Lang Lang says the stock is consolidating its gains at the top of the big candle, all right? Uh, He thinks this pattern is very bullish right here. Point that out. With players above its May highs, it's got a nice new floor of support at $100. How high could it go? The stock's old 2018 high was around $130. You got this floor support, and he thinks it can go all the way up there. Now, doesn't that intrigue you option hounds must like it, too? not be price of Polaris, gets there in short order because the momentum is strong with this one. All right, here's a little dicey one. I asked him to look at it because I'm just kind of depressed about this one group. It's called Royal Caribbean, all right? And it reports in two days. This is a very different picture from Polaris or Winnebago. Royal Caribbean's had a very, very rough time here, but now there's a W pattern forming. That's a classic bottom formation, looks just like the letter W. And I've got to tell you, uh, I I, I really want this to work because these guys are great guys, but so far this cruise industry has just been a disaster of late. This one is trading at 112 and change. It's ceiling resistance at the 200-day moving average, currently at 113.77, up a buck and a half from here. If the stock can break out, Lang thinks that it is the makings of a run back to May highs of about 130. So I'm glad I asked about it. If you think I'm right, boom, that could be really significant. Don't forget, the big problem is Caribbean, which whether you think of that, you think of storms. Royal Caribbean still has a lot of work to do, but it, it bounced off the twin lows and the W on a decent vibe, which suggests the line that the sellers are likely finished. The on-balance volume is improving, as is the relative strength index. That's another key momentum indicator. While Royal Caribbean still has a lot of work to do, Lang sees the momentum shifting to the bulls. It wouldn't take much to get this thing moving again. You got a couple positives here. Very interesting. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure someone else could say, look at this, Jim. Are you kidding me? But I like what I like what Bob has been saying here. Finally, how about the daily chart of Marriott Vacations Worldwide? That's the timeshare play. This stock has been grinding higher ever since it bottomed in early August, and the MACD indicator is now flashing a buy signal. Now that Marriott Vacations has established a set of higher lows, Lang's betting that this stock, it's a $110 stock. It's ready to make a run at last summer's highs. That's around 120 And then perhaps even all-time highs at 150 That may take some time. But as long as the pattern remains bullish, he thinks that's where we're headed. Plus, the unbalanced volume is very strong, indicating major institutional buying here. Your unbalanced volume, I don't know, to me... It's not as strong as he sees, but you know, he thinks the big boys are pulling in. He thinks it has got more room to run. I'm not sure. I know it's a very well-run company. But here's the bottom line. The charts, as interpreted by Bob Lang, suggest that things are looking very good for some of the most discretionary stocks imaginable. Winnebago, Polaris, Merifications, Vacations, and Royal Caribbean, perhaps about to turn the corner. These stocks are the only thrive in an environment where the consumer is in great shape. And I think their strength is a fabulous signal that the broader economy may be in better shape then we've been led to believe. So stick with Kramer. Over the weekend, we got some major news out of the Pentagon. Now, I'm not talking about the special forces raid that took out the leader of ISIS, although that was pretty major. No, I mean the big joint enterprise defense infrastructure or JEDI contract, the latest in a long line of Star Wars references from the Department of Defense. The Pentagon wants a single company to build out its enterprise cloud-based. Basically, they want uh, one, looking for one business to become the backbone of their digital infrastructure. They don't want a whole bunch of these flying around. Come on. Hey, let me have some fun. Anyway, for years, some of the biggest players in tech have been wrangling over this deal, a major piece of business that could be worth up to $10 billion over the next decade. And the contest got really ugly. Oh, you had lobbyists, lawsuits, accusations of impropriety in the procurement process, and probably a ton of back-channel wrangling that we'll never know about. But by April, the government had narrowed it down to two potential partners. The business was either going to go to Amazon Web Services, AWS, the number one player in the cloud infrastructure space, or to Microsoft's Azure, that's the number two player, it's the challenger. Amazon's the undisputed king of the cloud, so a lot of people assume they get it all, or at least part of the contract, even though President Trump, let's say he's not a fan. However, come Friday night, we learned that the whole deal is going to Microsoft, everything which is why the stock surged more than $3 or 2.5% today. This is a trillion-dollar company. That's big. I think that move made sense. But how important is this JEDI contract? What's $10 billion over 10 years to a trillion-dollar company? And what are the implications for everyone else? Let's start with Microsoft. All right. After perusing the analyst coverage, the consensus seems to be that this deal is worth anywhere from $2 to $10 per share. 2 to 10. So maybe it's already baked in after today's run. Maybe it's worth a bit more. That said, I think the real value of this contract goes beyond the money that they're getting from the Pentagon. See, winning this business is a huge boon for Microsoft's cloud business. Once you get the contract to build the Department of Defense's secure cloud infrastructure, you got to leg up on winning similar contracts down the road. In other words, it's a further validation of Azure. The best possible validation they could get. The Pentagon is basically saying that Microsoft's cloud platform is just as good as Amazon's, or at least close enough for government work. Although, according to the latest research from Gartner, Amazon Web Services is still the superior offering. They beat Microsoft in reliability, cost, and technical support. And Gartner remains the ultimate arbiter. But hey, if Azure is good enough for the Pentagon, it's probably good enough for any given business. Webbush described the deal as, and I quote, a paradigm changer for Microsoft. they are already been taking share in the enterprise. I think this win will give them even more of a boost. Next. Now, let's consider the context. This Jedi News broke roughly 24 hours after Microsoft and Amazon both reported their latest quarterly results. Microsoft knocked it out of the park Amazon's numbers, on the other hand, were widely panned. How did Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella deliver such phenomenal growth? Well, first of all, he's killing it in the intelligent cloud business, up 29%, and in cloud services, up 33%. Azure, particularly, good at an astounding 63% clip on a constant currency basis. So we already know Microsoft was firing on all cylinders. This JEDI contract simply confirms it. And yes, I am going to turn this on every time I use the term JEDI, all right? It's my darn show. As for Amazon, yes, the stock got dinged after the company reported an impressive revenue beat, coupled with ugly earnings. It was a big shortfall. It was really much more of the kind of forecast. I dismissed it. But you look, they are spending a fortune to build out the infrastructure necessary for one day shipping. Personally, I like it when Amazon invests in its plans for global domination. But Wall Street's not thrilled because, you see, Wall Street wants incredible growth without the spending that you need to make it happen. More important, if you were looking for signs of a slowdown in Amazon Web Services, well you did get a meaningful deceleration. The cloud business grew at a thirty five percent clip. When Andy Jassy was here, it was in the mid forties. And well it still looks it's fabulous in absolute terms, but worse than what the analysts were hoping for. That said, I really don't think losing this Jedi contract is a big deal for Amazon. And that's why the stock actually ended up rallying today after being down by about 1% this morning. Don't get me wrong. It's definitely an incremental negative. It would have been better for them to get the $10 billion worth of pen, a business from the Pentagon. I mean, it's a couple hundred million dollars in, in uh, free cash flow here. But this is a much more significant win for Microsoft Azure than it would be for Amazon Web Services. You gotta understand, AWS did nine billion in a quarter in revenue in this quarter. They're not weeping over losing what could have been a $10 billion uh, deal over the course of 10 years. Microsoft doesn't break out Azure specifically, but it's only a, uh, a fraction of their $11 billion commercial cloud division, which also includes software as a service offerings like Windows 365. On top of that, while winning is a validation of Microsoft's cloud platform, the fact that Amazon lost is really no knock on them. Everybody knows AWS is the best in business, and they're investing heavily in the cloud business to stay ahead of the pack. Even though Microsoft's starting to catch up, I think there's more than enough room for two players in this rapidly growing industry. There's one more reason I hesitate to draw any conclusions about Amazon from this Jedi story. It may not have been a fair fight. We know President Trump loathes Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, who also happens to own the Washington Post. It wouldn't shock me if he or someone in his orbit put their thumb on the scales of the scale in favor of Microsoft. Are there any real reverberations from this Jedi contract? There, I said it once without putting it on. Well, in addition to being positive for Microsoft, it also might help Oracle and VMware, and you know the latter, I think, is a good buy. Over the summer, Microsoft and Oracle rolled out an enhanced cloud collaboration partnership. Oracle Cloud and Microsoft Azure are now seemingly interoperable. In practice, this means it should be easier for Oracle to defend their existing pre-existing business with the Pentagon. As for VMware... They signed a really interesting and overlooked partnership. Thank you, Sanjay Poonen, COO of uh, VMware, for bringing it to my attention, uh, with Microsoft to make it easier for customers to keep running their legacy systems in data centers powered by Azure. You could even argue this is a win for IBM and Alphabet, although Alphabet needs it after that number tonight, because it means Amazon won't be able to monopolize all of our government's cloud-related government spending for defense. Going to this announcement, there was a sense that Amazon had a major advantage as they have the big CIA contract. If Amazon won the JEDI contract, then AWS would have been the Department of Defense default cloud infrastructure for the next 10 years. Now, though, the smaller players have more of a chance to win business. The bottom line? Microsoft won this $10 billion Jedi contract because they put in the work to make their cloud platform nearly as good as Amazon's. And I'm sure some would say it's better. While the stock had a big run here, I think Microsoft remains attractive. As for Amazon, losing this business is no skin off their back. The real issue is that they've spent so heavily to grow the business, and while I'm okay with that, it might give you more opportunities to buy the stock into weakness down the road because of Wall Street's inherent short-sightedness let's go to jerry in connecticut booyah jimbo jerry yeah hey How man you, what's sir? up <laughs> first i want to thank you so much for you for you do for the little guy which it does not go unnoticed love the little guy yes and i loved your book uh, get rich carefully excellent thank you you're welcome my stocks are they're not doing anything wrong we're, we've announced a stock split last July. Every quarter is excellent. I assume this the uh, trade thing going on, but what do you think of Alibaba? I don't need to... Look, i I, I got enough problems on American stocks. We do not need to go down the Chinese chute. I'm going to take a pass on that and say ixnay on the babanay. Let's go to Lillian in New Jersey. Lillian! Hi. Hi. I would like to know if... Zoom Video, which was an IPO this year, is a buy at these levels, and also since it is a profitable company. I think that the problem with Zoom is it's heavily shorted which means that you'll get a situation like a Grubhub where if they disappoint at all, they're going to bang the stock down. I think the more easily owned stock is Cisco. I know they missed the last quarter, but Cisco, I think, is more defensible. I am concerned for you if you do Zoom video, even though I love the company. I do love the company. Okay, the Contest of the Jedi. Well, it was getting ugly, but Microsoft put in... Oh, my God. But Microsoft put in the work to win it, I think the stock is still attractive. That doesn't mean that Amazon isn't. Much more have money ahead. Whoa, wondering why some single stocks are rising? I'm eyeing some stocks that manage to defy expectations and rise despite some less than stellar results. Then, looking for uh, looking at something that can give you some high yield and growth? I've got two players that could be worth eyeing, and I like them both. You should buy them here. And all your calls are rapid-fire. Tonight's edition of... The lightning round, so stick with Kramer. (laughs) The biggest surprise of earnings season so far, cyclical stocks. The ones that are supposed to get hammered in a tougher economy. And suddenly, they turn bulletproof. Even when they report disappointing numbers, Wall Street doesn't even seem to care. Normally, these stocks get hammered in the wake of a shortfall. Yet this quarter, they're more likely to rally. I mean, it's absolutely bonkers. I right, Consider this. Deer, Dow, Caterpillar, PPG, Illinois Toolwork, CSX, Union Pacific, all reported quarters that actually on the surface look pretty darn bad. They all had misses. They all had required estimate cuts. I mean... Wow, back in my old hedge fund, these are precisely the kinds of stocks I would be shorting at this very moment, at this point in the business cycle. When you think of companies about to miss numbers and slash this forecast, well, that's a great reason to bet against it. Because estimate cuts almost always lead to lower stock prices. These huge cyclicals all disappointed. They all triggered estimate cuts. But then something strange happened. Their stocks didn't really go down. In some cases, they actually rallied. Rallied big. The shorts got the numbers they wanted, and it just didn't matter. What the heck is going on here? All right, after doing my homework on the major cycles this and I got a three. First, many of these sell-side research outfits are run from the top down. In other words, the firm establishes its worldview, the head of research, its global growth forecast, and then the analysts try to peg the companies they cover into that worldview. Right now, the mood on Wall Street is as gloomy, maybe the gloomiest I've seen since the Great Recession, honestly. Even with the averages surging to new highs today, there's a widespread belief that things have deteriorated thanks to the trade war with China or the endless trauma of Brexit or the uncertainty over next year's election, even though it's pretty far away. If that's true, then the aggregate earnings estimates are probably too high. And if the aggregate numbers are too high, these analysts conclude that the shortfall is obviously going to come from some of these kinds of companies, the cyclicals. That makes it hard to interpret these quarterly results because the analysts had cut their estimates beforehand. Nobody was looking for anything good, for instance, from this guy. Not at all from Cat. When Cat was trading back at 138, it was in August of uh, earlier this year, Goldman Sachs downgraded from a buy to a hold. It cut the price target from, uh, down to 130, and was courtesy of a slowing global economy. It really slugged the stock. And then a week and a half ago, that's pretty close to when they reported, Morgan Stanley took Cat from a buy to a hold, trimming its price target to 145 on worries about peak construction and energy markets. As someone who had it from my travel trust, I gulped when I saw it. I said, oh, no, they got to know something. So when Caterpillar reported last week, even though they clearly missed on sales and earnings with a guidance cut to boot, the stock initially fell about 6% in pre-market trading. To be understood, it was understandable. It sunk to 130. I mean, the headline numbers look ugly, even in the face of lower expectations. But then the stock pirouetted, finishing the day up. Less than a buck, but up. What happened? All right, management told an encouraging story on the conference call where they committed to maintaining their bountiful buyback and their dividend. Thanks to those analysts who downgraded going into the quarter. The stock had already been softened up, which made it a lot easier for Caterpillar stock to bottom, and then immediately bounce right back. You know, the guy downgrade to, you know, the guy who wanted it down to 130 at Goldman, do you know the stock traded above 140, closed above 140 today? I mean, that's remarkable. Of course, not every stock seems bulletproof here. Let me give you a nice contrast. Not a cyclical. The case of senior growth stock, McDonald's. Now, this one caught a key downgrade going in earnings, not unlike what I just described with Caterpillar, right? Yet when it disappointed, the stock wasn't immunized at all. Instead, it got pulverized and the selling continues to stay. It's now down 18 points from the report. Why? Because McDonald's lacks the secret sauce to protect the cyclicals. Mickey D's stock is expensive, but the industrial stocks have finally gotten so cheap that they are basically immunized against bad News. Plus, they're even cheaper when you consider that most of these companies have committed to boosting their dividends regularly and buying back shares. I was bowled over when Caterpillar referred to itself as a dividend aristocrat. until so I looked at its history and sure enough, it's definitely one. Third reason for the bizarre strength of the sickles, their management teams turned out to be far more savvy than anyone imagined. Look no further than PPG on this one. This is a company that makes all sorts of coatings, and particularly in autos. I am used to seeing these guys cut numbers in a downturn because they're a lever to everything from planes to cars to buildings. But CEO Michael McGarry saw it coming. He was able to rapidly throttle back on costs and dodge the shortfall. So the quarter was better than feared. McGarry even called out the auto business as a source of strength. In other words, these executives learned from the Great Recession, and they're not going to let themselves get blindsided again. They're smarter than they used to be. Next up, the cycles that are working here have decided to change the stripes to the point where they deserve higher valuations than they used to. And for that, I'm going to turn to ITW, which had some struggling. It went down all the way down, you know, about 50 points below where it is. Well, you know, look, this is a real manufacturer's manufacturer. We're supposed to miss badly. The last few quarters were suboptimal, and the auto industry's been holding them back. Yet on this conference call, I heard so much about ITW's non-auto-related businesses, including science, patents, whatever, that I realized it's a better company than people think. They're not just going to sit there and take a beating. Illinois Toolworks had margin improvement pretty much in everything. The raw cost came down. The company actually saw some strength in Europe. And that's why that stock caught fire. It gave up a little bit today, but it, it's a comer. But the best examples of raw improvements came from the railroads, okay? Union Pacific and CSX. Yeah, I keep thinking about just last week when Jim Foote amazing CSX CEO, he came on and he said, look, for decades, the rails in this country simply weren't that well run. Perhaps because, look, they only had limited competition. They rarely compete with each other, and there are tons of cargoes that are simply too bulky to transport by truck. However, in the last few decades, as our economy shifted away from heavy industry and toward more uh, low-bulk, high-value items, trucks started taking share. Gradually, trains went from nearly 100% of all transportation to just 8%. Finally, the railroads decided they'd had enough. They are bringing in a new group of executives who decided they needed to reevaluate everything if they're going to take back that lost market share. They came up with something called precision railroading. They managed their trains more efficiently, making them more punctual and more convenient. And efficiency breeds higher earnings per share. And that's why, even though CSX and Union Pacific saw some ugly revenue declines, their earnings didn't fall nearly as fast. No wonder both stocks quickly bottomed and then came roaring back. They're both buys. We saw something similar from Deer. All right, uh, this is a little bit different. Um, it should have been hit. What does Deer have going for it, though? Okay, when China decided to shift its big soy orders to Brazil, the farmers down there used their windfall to buy lots of equipment from Deer. At the same time, our government bailed out struggling American farmers, allowing them to buy more equipment from Deer too. In a way, China shifting those orders actually benefited these guys because it allowed them to double uh, double dip. And while I'm at it, I wonder whether. Uh, The Chinese really pretty much waived their their poultry ban on the U.S., which sent up Sanderson Farms and sent up Tyson. That could be good for corn for all I know. I mean, it's very complicated, ag complex, but just keep it in mind. All right. The fifth and final reason why these cycles refuse to go down, because the global economy may not be on the precipice after all. I mean, it's possible, just possible that things could actually be getting a little better around the globe at least for these companies. If you think the trade war has gotten as bad as it's going to get, if you think the Brexit situation could actually be resolved, then these cyclicals may be the perfect place to be. Who would have thought it? That's supposed to be where you sell right now and not buy, bottom line. Now you know why the likes of Deer and Dow and Caterpillar, PPG, Illinois Toolworks, CSX, and Union Pacific managed to rally in the face of ugly numbers. And honestly, you know what? In every single case, I think they have more room to run. They have money's back after the break. It is time to start for the light round. record run. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Dad, it's the lightning round. Good man, but going to start with Harsh in Pennsylvania. Harsh. Booyah, Jim, and thank you for taking my call. out. Oh, quick brilliant. question on ALB, uh, MRL Corporation. Yeah, well, they missed the quarter pretty badly, and we're not going to, you know, so they're in the penalty box. Got to wait a full quarter before we can touch that one, horse. How about Darlene in New Jersey? Darlene! Hi, Jim. I love your show. Thank you, Darlene. Uh, I'm uh, I'm retired, and I'm always okay. looking for a good dividend stock. Uh, I don't currently own any REITs. But I'm wondering what you think of them and uh, as an investment. I like in fact, the Reeks. Iron Mountain symbol. Iron IR, Mountain's and- good. I mean, Iron Mountain has perennially been around 7% yield. People are always worried about it. I think it's good. Okay, let's go to Sean in Illinois. Sean. Hey, Jim. This is Sean from Chicago, Illinois. I was calling you about uh, Realogy symbol R L G Y. Yeah. um, Yeah. Full disclosure, my my uh, my wife works for them. Uh, I think that it's okay. I do worry about the housing market. I think the housing market is is just uh, for what they do. Just okay, Not good enough. I'm going to say it's a cheap stock. I I, I hesitate to say more. How about we go to uh, Yvonne, Yvonne in New York, Yvonne. Hi, how are you, Mr. Kramer? I am good. How I are you? I'm very interested in the Wendy's stock, WEN. Well, you know what? Everyone thinks that Wendy's and McDonald's are going to be an incredible war over breakfast. I think that Wendy's is in good shape and the stock is overdone on the downside. Maybe you want to wait until it goes under 20 to buy some, but I really like Wendy's. Let's go to George in New York. George. Hey, Jim. Great show. Thank you, George. You're- your opinion on CME Group? Probably CME Group is best in show. I, I was talking this over with someone in the, uh, who is uh, in the NFL, and we were both saying, you know what? It's probably right. I was being too shary. I was worried about 29 times earnings, but it is doing very, very well. Ken in Washington. Ken. Hey, who you, Jim. Uh, Anley Capital, N L Y. We don't really know what's inside of Anley Capital, so therefore we do not recommend this stock. This has been my feeling ever since Mike Farrell passed away many, many years ago. He used to be Annaly. Let's go to Carol, New York. Carol. Hi, Jim. Carol. Enjoy your sense of humor. Thank I'm you. At the end of the show. Um, my Hershey position turned into a big loss. What's going on? Well, I mean, it was not a great quarter, to be honest. I really do prefer Mondelez. I think it's a better and more simple story. And that, ladies and gentlemen, the inclusion of the Lightning Round! The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. There are two things you rarely find together, growth and yield. They're like oil and water. When a company has one, it tends not to bother with the other. Growth businesses have better things to spend their money on than dividends, while dividend aristocrats prefer to return cash to you, the shareholder, rather than shelling out fortunes to gamble on growth. But every now and then, the market will give you a gift, the high-yielding stock of a company with a decent growth rate. Right now, you're getting two of them. You're getting AT&T and Dow Chemical. Yep. AT&T currently sports a 5.5% yield and Dow pays you nearly 5.6%. Admittedly, their yields were, were even more enticing two weeks ago before the stock started climbing. Although they're still in the sweet spot between five and 6%. And that's where you know the yield is generous, but it's not so high that it's a red flag. Above 6%, you got to start worrying whether they can maintain the payout. Usually they're worried about the fundamentals and, and believe that the dividend may not be cut. I don't know. They're good at six. I'm not. That's why I always warn you not to reach for yield. Never try to get a few extra pennies in dividend if the underlying business isn't doing well. Now, until four days ago, I was worried that both ATT and Dow might fall into the bucket of dividend stocks that I found too risky. But then last week, I interviewed Jim Fitterling. He's the CEO of Dow, and he made it clear that costs are coming way down, while pricing for key chemicals is either bottoming or turning higher. Plus, the free cash flow is very poundable. or much better than I imagined. And Dow's earnings for interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization more than cover its quarterly distribution of $0.70 per share. Now, how about ATT? Last year, I had the privilege of interviewing Paul Singer. He's the legendary head of Elliott Management. That's an activist hedge fund with an incredible track record. Not that long ago, Elliott snapped up $3.2 billion with ATT stock, and they presented a comprehensive plan to unlock value. Under CEO Randall, Randall Stevenson. get this. Uh, this thing has lagged the S&P 500 by about 100 percent. The stock was at $39 when he took over in 2007. Today's at 38. During that same period, Verizon's gone from 38 to 60. Fortunately, rather than trying to fight Elliott, Stevenson, seems to have gone gone all in with their suggestions by following Elliott's plan. The company could earn 450 to 480 per share, which could make the stock. A $60 stock would not that much difficult. I'm mulling this one over for my Chapel trust, which you can follow along by joining the Plus.com club. So what's the plan here? Stevenson's conducting a full portfolio review, including the possible disposition of DirecTV, which is still losing customers, although not as rapidly as it used to. Plus, the chairmanship and the CEO job will be split for greater accountability. In short, everything's on the table. Now, this is a scenario where I bet ATT can keep delivering modest dividend growth while paying down a huge amount of debt that it took on to buy DirecTV and Time Warner. That said, I know Dow and ATT, I know they're both challenged. I'm not going to kid myself. I myself have argued that Dow stock could be toxic because the company makes all sorts of despised plastics that don't break down that easily and therefore be shunned by millennial money managers. But you know what? Look at a slide in the deck from the latest quarter shows you that plastic may be more environmentally friendly than we'd like to think because it takes an enormous amount of energy and chemicals in trees to make any kind of alternative. Plus, Dow's making a major effort to make more plastic from recycled fibers. As for ATT, I know it lost 1.4 million pay TV customers uh, this quarter. The numbers weren't great, although Stevenson said the subscriber numbers are bottoming. What matters to me is that the company will cease making acquisitions and start to pay down the debt with asset sales. Plus tomorrow, ATT reveals HBO Max, the new streaming system to compete with Disney Plus and Apple TV plus NBC's Peacock. It won't be out officially until spring, but it's the first sign that time war acquisition could produce some solid growth, not just cash flow. Either way, at a moment where bonds are paying you next to nothing, the 10-year currently at 1.85%. Dow and at stock offer you a twofer. Higher yields with a real chance for growth. I recommend buying some here and then maybe wait for the Fed to say something boneheaded on Wednesday and slams the market. Or maybe the Labor Department non-farm payroll on Friday shows a surprise drop. You can buy some more then on weakness. Be patient. Dow and at are now, in a safe way, paying you to wait. Stick with Kramer. Alphabet's so hard, but I'll tell you this, if you see price target increases tomorrow, this stock is going to go to all-time highs. Don't be confused. The headline numbers are rarely right when it comes to Alphabet because there are so many moving parts yet people keep trading without listening to the conference call. Don't be stupid! Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Graber. I'll see you tomorrow!